Hey, Shakes Pals. Wanted to start off with a massive thank you to Sarah Guillaume for coming on last week to talk about the best and worst final speeches and a congratulations for winning with Mercutio as the best and our combined efforts for Warwick as the worst. Also, I want to thank Cassidy Cash for all of her work this week in researching historical accuracy in Shakespeare death scenes. I was absolutely floored and fascinated by all of her research, and I'm super excited for you all to get to hear it. Before we get there, though, I want to take a quick minute to pop out from behind the mic. Uh, I've been a teacher for 13 years, and today, on the release of this episode, uh, it was my very last day of teaching in a formal classroom capacity. I can't imagine my life not being a teacher, but I also can't imagine another year or even a day of what we as educators consistently endure. This podcast started as a way for me to relieve some of the stress of teaching and begin to find love for my subject matter again, but it has become something so much more for me over the past almost two years. I've met so many brilliant folks who've shared their joy, knowledge, and time so generously. I've stretched my own brain sometimes beyond where I thought it could go, and I have laughed. I have laughed so much recording episodes, listening back to them while editing and engaging with our community online. I have needed these laughs, and I am so grateful for them. While I look forward to what the next years of this podcast will bring, and I'm excited to create in a space of not escape, but maybe actual real productivity and energy beyond my daily work, I will never forget the struggles of being in education, especially in the U.S. I hope one day to be able to walk into a room and not automatically scan for hiding spots, exit strategies, and what furniture can be moved to block the door. I hope one day that the stomping of feet in a stadium, angry at a ref's call, doesn't send me into a panic attack of where's the gun? I hope one day that when I'm evacuated for a fire alarm, my fears don't jump to high alert of who could be using that evacuation to gain entry with firearms. I hope one day that a work training helps improve my ability to do my job instead of adding guilt onto me for not having been able to save more lives. It can feel helpless and hopeless, simultaneously emotionally numbing and overwhelming to read the news every day, but I will never stop fighting for productive change in educational policy and firearm restriction. If you're not registered to vote, I'm happy to help you through the process. If you need help sorting through the thousands of web pages full of contradicting information before each and every local election, I'm happy to send you the nonpartisan resources that I use. If you want a list of the elected officials you can call right now to voice your concerns and demands for change, I'll make one for you. If you mean to vote in the smaller local elections but just keep missing them, I'm happy to help create a calendar with alerts for you. Or, hot tip, if you tell Facebook you want to vote, they will put a banner on your homepage every single election day. Just DM me on Instagram or Twitter and we'll get you rolling. These small elections, like the one we had this week in Texas, are crucial to enacting real and lasting change in our communities. Only 18% of registered voters voted in the March primaries in Texas. If you want things to change, you have to show up. You have to do your research, come prepared, and make your voice heard every single time. It can feel like a Sisyphean task, but it's better to push that boulder together than sit at the bottom of the hill and let it crush us. Additionally, if you're looking for something to do right now, the supporters group I'm in for Austin FC has coordinated a GoFundMe to support the families of victims and survivors in Uvalde. You can find the link in the show notes. I'm so grateful to you all and so excited to start the next act of my life. Next week, we are brightening up our topics with a month full of hearing from Shakespeare power couples all about love in the canon. Thank you for being here, and I hope you enjoy listening to today's episode as much as I had fun recording it. Welcome to Protest Too Much, a Shakespeare Showdown podcast where a guest and I go head-to-head -head each week 
and you get to decide who wins. All right. So this week we're shaking things up a little bit. We are digging into some actual facts. I know it will shock you all to have real legitimate information on this podcast, but with me, I've got historian and host of That Shakespeare Life, Cassidy Cash. Cassidy, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this because we're doing the whole season on deaths and there are some historical deaths in Shakespeare's plays. And today we're going to talk about how historically accurate or how not accurate some of these deaths are. So Cassidy, you've ranked, you've ranked the top five, right? Uh, Well, I have put together my top five, I think, um, because there are, there's more than five historical deaths in Shakespeare's plays. And obviously there's way more than five deaths in general, but (laughs) just to, to keep for the sake of time, I guess, and not, not to overwhelm the, yeah, I've listed five in order of least to most historically accurate. That's awesome. So before we dive into that, which I'm very excited for, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and that Shakespeare life? I am Cassidy Cash. I'm the host of That Shakespeare Life. We are currently the number two ranked in the world Shakespeare history podcast right after the Folger Shakespeare Library, which is exciting. That was a a rank we achieved this year. So we're pretty excited about that. Our show interviews various experts from around the world on the life and times of William Shakespeare to really dive in and explore what it was like to live in 16th turn of the 17th century England. So that's me. That's what I do. We have a vibrant Patreon community of people that join us to go more in depth after each episode. So that's a lot of fun too. And that's every Monday. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, your favorite podcast platform, or right at CassidyCash.com is probably the best place to listen and, and get access to all the history extras. Perfect. Yeah. I've listened and I feel like I... I feel like it's one of those podcasts that is intimidating to me as a podcaster because I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much information and effort <laughs> in this. And I'm just like, we're over here yelling about stuff. So I'm excited to cross those two worlds a little bit today. Um, now, Cassidy, do you want to start with most historically accurate or did you want to start with least historically accurate death? I was going to go through a list of ones that are least to most historically accurate. So I will end with the one that, that I consider the most historically accurate in my opinion. Brilliant. Well, if you're ready, I am ready for you to take it away. All right, let's dive in. The first historical death I'm going to share with you is, of course, Julius Caesar. You probably saw that one coming. But in Shakespeare's version, a group of politicians, including Caesar's bosom pal Brutus, conspire to kill Caesar, ultimately stabbing him to death as a group on the Ides of March. Now, the Ides of March is March 15th, and you can celebrate that now that you know. (laughs) This death is very accurate to the historical record, but it's actually toned down for Shakespeare's version of his death, if you can believe that. In real life, it was a group of as many as 60 members of the Roman Senate who conspired to stab Caesar to death at the meeting of the Senate on March 15th, 44 BC. They stabbed Caesar or reported 23 times. There are a few other conflicts with history presented by Shakespeare, including the downplaying of Decimus, 
who Shakespeare lists Decimus' involvement as a minor. But in fact, Decimus and not Brutus and Cassius is considered to have been the leader of the historical plot against the real Julius Caesar. We don't know for sure, additionally, that etu brute was Caesar's last words. There aren't any historical records for that phrase being said by Caesar beyond Shakespeare's invention of that idea in his play, which just promotes the, the influence and power of Shakespeare's words, because a lot of people do associate that with Julius Caesar. Yeah. Second is Arthur in King John. <laughs> the real Arthur was a nephew to King John. He was named heir to the English throne by Richard I, and he wanted Arthur and not John to become king after him. We don't actually know how the real Arthur died. There's a huge mystery around his death, and there were several plots against his life by John and his partners in France, as well as several operators on Arthur's behalf who were working to try and save him until eventually the 16-year-old Arthur vanishes from historical record vanishes from life and we have no idea what happened to him the the ultimate outcome of arthur is a complete mystery shakespeare however was not satisfied with it being a mystery <laughs> and decides to write his own alternate ending for arthur and in shakespeare's version Arthur is only 12, not 16, and still very much a young child. Arthur dies after he is threatened with mutilation by Hubert, one of John's men. Hubert threatens to kill Arthur, but cannot bring himself to do it. He's swayed by Arthur's innocence as a child. And ultimately, while he's wrestling with the task he's been sent to do here, Arthur decides to try and escape. And he, as a brilliant 12 year old would decide decides i'm gonna jump out the castle wall oh, no. and that unfortunately kills arthur from the fall so while it is true that in real life we have records indicating that hubert de Burgh, the first earl of kent and nobleman under king john did actually incarcerate arthur at the chateau de Falais, according to 13th century chronicler ralph of Cogshall. John ordered Arthur to be blinded and castrated, which Hubert could not bring himself to do. So that whole internal conflict about it being a child and not wanting to do this, we do have historical record to back that up. But Ooh. Hubert was afraid of John, so he spread a rumor that Arthur was dead. And we know that Arthur was relocated to a prison in Rouen, but after that, he simply disappears. We don't know what happened to him. And there are several rumors about what happened, including the idea that maybe his jailers were afraid to hurt him. Maybe they were swayed by him being young, which ultimately leads to John killing Arthur himself and dumping his body in the Seine River. There's another record from a Cistercian monastery in Wales called the Margam Annals that actually records Arthur's death and describes it this way. After King John had captured Arthur and kept him alive in prison for some time at length in the castle of Rouen after dinner in the Thursday before Easter, when he was drunk and possessed by the devil, he <laughs> slew him with his own hand and tying a heavy stone to the body, cast it into the Seine. It was discovered by a fisherman in his net and being dragged to the bank and recognized was taken for a secret burial in fear of the tyrant to the priory of Bec called Notre Dame de Prey. What? Now, I feel like, honestly, I feel like that's like more Shakespearean than Shakespeare's version. Exactly. Yes. Well, you know, they they say truth is stranger than fiction. <laughs> you can you can definitely see why Shakespeare was attracted to this story of like, I have yeah. to put this on the play. Wow. Um, so for sure. But so he definitely based it in history. But um, there are some major factual errors. Sure. <laughs> 
for for him. So number three is Cleopatra in Antony and Cleopatra. Easily one of the the most famous and favorite deaths in Shakespeare's plays, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But in Shakespeare's version, Cleopatra dies from letting a poisonous snake, um, an Egyptian asp, bite her and she dies from the poison. She's attended by two servants, Iris and Charmin, who also kill themselves after Cleopatra dies. Now, history shares that this portrayal is true to what we know about Cleopatra's death. Octavian had entered Egypt to take it over for Rome and intended to parade Cleopatra in a Roman display of conquest. They were going to march her through the streets and be like, look, we caught her. We win. We're in charge. And when a spy told Cleopatra about these plans, Cleopatra prepared for suicide because she was refusing. She's like, that's not happening to me. Apparently something similar had happened to her sister. And she just was like, no, it won't be me. You're not parading, parading me around as a triumph. So Cleopatra did plan to commit suicide, but it's not clear exactly where she committed suicide. Um, some place it in her tomb. And that's the way Shakespeare portrays it. And that's a, a viable option as one of the places that she could have the real Cleopatra had as an option. But it also gets said that she was accompanied by her servants, Iris and Charmin. So Shakespeare gets the names of the attendants correct as well. Oh, cool. And they did also take their own lives. Octavian was said to have been angered by this outcome, but had Cleopatra buried in a royal fashion anyway, next to Antony in her tomb. Cleopatra's physician Olympus didn't explain Cleopatra's cause of death, but there was a popular belief that she was that she did allow a snake to bite her and to poison her. Plutarch tells this tale about Cleopatra, but then suggests an implement of some kind was used to introduce the snake toxin to her body. Another Greek philosopher named Dio says that Cleopatra injected the poison into herself with a needle. There was no venomous snake found with her body, according to the records that we do have um but she did have a tiny puncture wound on her arm so that Whoa. backs up the the needle or snake um theory there so cool. again shakespeare is definitely well read and paying attention to what the historical records said about cleopatra and adding in his own flair yeah that's really cool i i hadn't heard um about that puncture mark and I, I guess I had, cause I obviously haven't done this research, but I think that's really interesting that it is like so similar, but maybe not necessarily exact. Definitely snakes are more dramatic though. I think. I, I think so. Absolutely. <laughs> Especially if you consider like, they're probably bringing real ones on stage at some point to, Ooh, to do yeah. that. Oh yeah. Oh, like, oh. So I had that. I had definitely not gets, considered. <laughs> it gets the, it gets the, the wow factor from the audience. I would Yeah. Say. For sure. Okay. Okay. So number four is Lord Macduff, the Thane of Fife. So in the play Macbeth, Macbeth kills a young Macduff, the son of Lord Macduff, the Thane of Fife. This scene is often not produced in modern productions of Macbeth because it's very brutal. So even if you've seen versions like uh, the Michael Fassbender film of Macbeth recently, yeah. that's not in there. And a lot of stage productions cut it out too. But once you know it's there, you really see... Macduff's killing of Macbeth as as triumphant because there is a kind of justice for his son. Now, while the characters themselves are largely fictional, they are based on historical fact. Now, Shakespeare's characters are fictional. The Macduff name in 
Scottish history dates to the 11th century, and it is in connection with the Thane of Fife. But there aren't any records after that. There's a real castle known as Macduff Castle in Scotland, and at least two historians I was able to find credit this castle as being that of the Macduff clan in Scotland. I can give you a link to this to back up what I'm saying. But <laughs> according to an online record of Scottish clans and families, the clan Macduff was the most powerful family in Fife throughout the Middle Ages. It they claim to be descended from the original um, Scoto-Pictish line of which Macbeth, King of Scotland, was the senior representative. After the death of Macbeth, Malcolm III of Scotland seizes the crown. Interestingly, according to historical record, it was the chief of the Macduff clan who had the right to crown the next Scottish king. And in the play, in Shakespeare's version, Macbeth makes it possible for Malcolm to become the next king of Scotland, effectively crowning him when he presents Malcolm with the head of Macbeth. So there's Shakespeare's paying attention even to Scottish tradition among clans with his with his presentation there. But obviously he has to fill in a lot of the, <laughs> the details because there just isn't. I mean, even when you go back to to Scottish history and try and look through some of the the records, there just isn't that much to go on. So Shakespeare was was trying really hard there, but there's not much to confirm or deny, I guess, his version. I like that there's like enough of a of a tie and enough of a connection, though, to keep it pretty, pretty linked, at least in that historical fiction that we're more used to for kind of modern stuff. Oh, absolutely. And at this time in in history, you know, was the first time Scotland and and England were were coming together. You know, Macbeth came out in 1606 was when it was written and this was definitely a pro pro Scotland. So Shakespeare was was really wanting to make sure he had dotted his eyes and crossed his T's with this yeah. play in, in general. So definitely cool. he was looking at the historical record. Very cool. So number number five, the our, my last highest ranking one here, um, <laughs> yes, is uh, Gloucester. Soon to be Richard the Third kills his brother Clarence in Shakespeare's Richard the Third. Now the real George Duke of Clarence was a flip flopper during the War of the Roses, and he pays dearly for his inconsistency. He was born a member of the House of York but he switches to the Lancastrians before going back again to being a York. Ultimately, nobody knows if they can trust this guy. <laughs> and Edward VI convicts him of treason and has him executed. Shakespeare's version of his death is somewhat accurate in that Clarence does die and is murdered. I guess you could call this executed because he's drowned offstage in a butt of Malmsey. <laughs> For the uninitiated, a butt of Malmsey is a size rating for an alcoholic storage barrel. So essentially, it's this giant barrel, wooden barrel of wine, and they drown him in it. Um, we, I would like to credit Shakespeare with being creative here, but the actual historical record for Clarence bears up the death scene afforded to him by Shakespeare. Apparently, this, this is wild. When I saw this on your notes as like the most accurate, I was like, this cannot be true. And I know I I'm know. so excited because our, um, so ahead of this episode, I've put out, um, or I will put out on Twitter for people to guess which of these five is the most to least accurate. And oh, fantastic. I almost guarantee this is going to be, I would have guessed that this was the least and Caesar was the most. So I'm like, 
this whole thing is blowing my mind, but sorry, keep, keep <laughs> right. going about the wine. <laughs> yeah. So this, this is why this one's a lot of fun because a lot of people do just assume that Shakespeare is coming up with the most outlandish thing he could put on stage. But Clarence was generally unstable mentally. He suffered from delusions and, and other um, psychological episodes. He had one of his wives, ladies in waiting and an additional servant murdered for supposedly poisoning his wife in childbirth. Um, the King would go on to grant those people posthumous pardons a year later, essentially being like Clarence is an idiot. I'm so sorry. But Clarence is warned by the King to back off of these crazy antics and to be careful with his playing at treason against the King. But Clarence ignores the warning either because he's incapable of paying attention or he, you know, I don't know what his reasons are, but he ignores the king and instead hires a man who was well known for supporting Henry VI claim to the throne. So against Edward VI to go to parliament and make a big political scene on Clarence's behalf. Edward Edward VI kind of, I'm sorry, Edward IV kind of loses his patience with Clarence at this point. The brother having thoroughly exhausted all familial graces by his behavior and Edward has Clarence imprisoned. There's this trial for treason and Clarence is convicted. The official record saying that he was, quote, privately executed. But soon after his death, the rumor was that he had been drowned in a butt of a Malmsey. And I have a source from 1911 Cambridge University to to back that up. So for Shakespeare, the historical record that he would have been aware of referring to the story supports the idea that Clarence pushed his luck too far and was executed by being drowned in a butt of Malmsey. That, that was the, the reigning story for the outcome of George Duke of Clarence when Shakespeare put it on stage. So this is my choice for most historically accurate death in Shakespeare, because it, it's almost exactly what the historical record would have been when Shakespeare staged it. That is absolutely wild. And I am so excited that I'm so grateful that you have this research and that you're sharing it with all of us. Because uh, like I said, I would have guessed one in five totally flipped on this chart. And I think that a lot of our listeners may have guessed that as well, but this is so cool. Yeah. I'm so glad that you like it. And I do want to apologize. I think I said Edward the sixth a couple of times and it is Edward the fourth. I've got it written correctly in my notes, but I, I went visually, I flip letters sometimes. So I said that wrong, but no it's, a, it's Edward the fourth. Don't, don't send me letters. <laughs> send Cassidy, all of the appreciation letters. Um, y'all can reach out. Uh, how can people find you on the internet? Let them know one more time. Yes. Um, you can come find me at CassidyCash.com. I'm also on Twitter at that Shakespeare. You can come and talk with me over there. I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Cassidy. Thank you everyone for listening. Uh, let us know how you did on our guessing game. If you were right on the money or if you were like me, totally off, off money, off money forever. Um, <laughs> thank you, Cassidy. Thank you for listening and we'll see y'all next week. Serious business.